Great, so we're in a series at the moment in the book of Daniel, um, and the series is called Bold Integrity. So we've been looking at the life of Daniel, thinking this question, how do we live as resilient disciples in a complex world? And I'd really encourage you, if you get a chance, if you haven't been with us the past few weeks, to check out some of the messages online that have been building up to this point. But today, what I want to speak about, um, and I think is about one of the keys, really, to the bold integrity of Daniel's life, and that key is holiness. Now, maybe you're here, and you hear the word holiness, and you get really excited. That's great. You're in the right place. Um, But others, perhaps you hear holiness, and you think nuns, monks, maybe just something for people that think they're better than other people. But what we're going to see, hopefully, this evening as we dig into this passage, as we look at Scripture as to who God is and that an attribute of him is his holiness, we see that actually holiness is the most beautiful, wonderful, and awesome thing. And we'll see through the life of Daniel that his life of holiness is so much more than just pure moral living. That's a wonderful fruit of holiness. But actually, holiness at its root is about undivided devotion to God. It's actually about worship. It's about worshiping God, the only one who is holy, worshiping him with our whole lives, with our heart, mind, soul, and strength. So that's what we're going to be digging into this afternoon. So just to quickly recap where we're at in the story in the book of Daniel, we've got Daniel and his young friends as young men who have been taken from their home in Israel and exiled into Babylon, one of the most powerful cities in the world at the time. And it was in fact as a result of Israel, the Jewish people's disobedience and their rejection of of God that they'd ended up being taken into exile. But we see even in a foreign land, Daniel living, displaying God's spirit, his spirit at work within him, living no matter what he faced in a really complex and difficult situation out of his homeland, living with undivided devotion to God. In fact, actually, it was Daniel's costly acts of obedience in his early life, his integrity where he chose to stand firm, that actually set him apart in the long run to be used by God in a really powerful way. And we'll see that the same spirit that was in Daniel, the power of holiness on display in his life, actually through Jesus is the same spirit that is on offer to each and every one of us today. So coming into chapter five, the passage that we've just read, let's just set the scene a moment. Just leading up to that, in the previous chapters, we've heard about another king, King Nebuchadnezzar. We've seen his rise and his fall and as one of the most powerful rulers of the day. But after he was truly humbled, he went mad for a time. He actually was restored to being human again as he acknowledged that God was the only one true holy God, the God of Daniel. And we see at the end of chapter four, he even says this, now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven because everything he does is right and all his ways are just. So that's where we leave off with Nebuchadnezzar. But then we jump straight into Daniel chapter five with this new king, King Belshazzar. And in stark contrast to to King Nebuchadnezzar, we see that Belshazzar hasn't learned anything from his grandfather's mistakes. And so before we dig into the power of holiness at work in Daniel's life, I want to look at the power of another work, um, the work, the power of ultimately idolatry in Belshazzar's life, a man who greatly dishonored God. So firstly, the power of idolatry. 
I just want you to think for a moment if you've ever been invited to a beautiful dinner party or a big banquet, and perhaps a birthday celebration or a wedding reception or even a college ball. And just imagine and picture that scene. I don't know if you've ever been to something like that where it's just been completely derailed because of something that, that happened at the scene. I was once at a big barbecue actually in a church garden in Paris. We'd invited loads of people along and it was a great feast and I was helping serve drinks. It was all going really well until I leant over a tea light and accidentally set myself on fire. And instead of just being like a normal person, you know, stop, drop and roll, tap it out, I ran. I just ran and then the flames grew and miraculously, I wasn't burned. I think the, the materials didn't stick to me anyway. It was all fine. But needless to say, the whole party came to a very swift end. Um, it just kind of killed the vibe. <laughs> and all the people we'd invited were like, what is going on? Um, but anyway, picture this scene, this incredibly lavish banquet that is going on. We have King Belshazzar, this incredibly powerful ruler, holding a lavish fe feast for thousands of his lords, food and wine flowing abundantly, complete decadence, all in honor of himself. And in fact, you can read in Greek historians that these parties, these lavish feasts, were in fact very much part of the culture and of the time. But things escalate at the feast when King Belshazzar decides in his drunken, drunken state to ask for the golden vessels or golden cups um, to be that were taken out of the holy temple of Jerusalem that had been taken and, and carried with them to be used and brought into the feast for actually the people to drink from. But not only that, to drink from these golden vessels, these holy vessels, and to toast the gods of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and stone. But why was, why was this such a big deal? We see these golden vessels represented something so much more than just stolen artifacts that were worth something. We read in the history of the Jewish people in Exodus and Leviticus that these items of, of gold had been consecrated for worship. They were used in the holy temple to pour wine on the altar of God. They were made by skilled craftsmen, people who loved God, and they were to be used for his glory alone. They were used to worship the one and true holy God. So not only that, but King Belshazzar would have known of, of his predecessor's supernatural King Nebuchadnezzar's experiences with God, how he was humbled and how God had spoken powerfully to him. Yet he ignored all of that. He knew that and he rejected it. He'd made up his mind to publicly and very publicly mock and gesture in a way that he just completely had no regard for who God was and commit sacrilege and blasphemy. His heart was so hardened towards the God of Israel, it was as if he didn't even believe that he existed. To him, the ultimate idol in his life was his own power. He'd learned nothing of his uh, family's mistakes. Even as enemy armies were encamping around Babylon, he just continued to feast and pretend like nothing else could come against him. And Belshazzar's guests were certainly not prepared for what was about to happen next. As we read on in the scriptures, you see, idolatry always leads to destruction. As the saying goes, the writing is on the wall. Pride comes before a fall. And in a truly sobering moment for this scene, Belshazzar is shook to the core when a human hand, a hand appears on the wall and begins to write, mene, mene, tekel, parsin. The idols that they toasted to of gold, silver, bronze, iron, and stone could do nothing to save him now. The God that Belshazzar didn't even believe in had broken in through his defenses and got his attention in a massive way. 
He was completely undone by what he experienced. And I'm not sure what you think of when you hear the word idols today. We might not necessarily find ourselves toasting to the gods of wind and rain and gold and silver at parties or have little idol statues on our desk at work or in our family home. But actually, I think idols are so much more prevalent in our culture than we realize. For followers of Jesus, for Christians, actually idolatry is anything that is more important to us than God, anything that absorbs our heart and imagination more than him. As one pastor, Tim Keller, says, a counterfeit God is anything so central and essential to your life, should you lose it, your whole life would feel hardly worth living. And the rubbish thing about idolatry is it actually takes what is good, good gifts from God, and turns them into something contrary to what they were made for. We're made to worship, so our tendency is towards, in fact, wanting to worship, but this can turn to idolatry when it's not towards God. As a theologian, Calvin wrote, the human heart is a perpetual idol factory. And we may think of some of the classic things that, that come as idol, idols in our lives, money, sex, and power. But actually, there's so many more subtle ones that creep in. Here in a city like Oxford, with so much wonderful academic success, that in and of itself can become so much of an idol that we can't live with anything other than achieving what we want to achieve. But things like comfort can actually also become an idol. Our careers can become an idol. Our reputation can become an idol. Even our families, our children can become an idol. Our self-image can become an idol. A relationship we long for can become an idol. These things aren't bad in and of themselves. God wants to bless us and to see us flourish. But when they take a higher place in our hearts than him, they can become destructive and rob us of so much. And it can be easy in our culture of instant satisfaction and gratification when we feel a bit low, when things aren't going well, to just quickly buy something to make us feel better or to watch something on our screens that will just ease our pain. But at the root of all of this, ultimately, idolatry is disordered love. As the prophet Jonah prayed, those who cling to worthless idols turn away from God's love for them. They take us away, ultimately, from intimacy with God from the love that we were made for. Which is why idols are so deadly and destructive, because they come and creep in and begin to form us. We become what we worship. And so just as King Belshazzar's idol of power, of exalting himself up above everyone else, his need to be exalted, it ultimately destroyed him. And we see throughout the beginning of human history, kingdoms rise and fall, but one true king remains. Because ultimately, judgment came upon Belshazzar. We read later on in the story, um, as Daniel delivers the verdict of what actually this writing truly means, he says, you did not honor the God who holds in his hand your life in all your ways. Now, that's heavy stuff. But you see, the power of idolatry is no match for the power of the Most High King. And I want to say today that the key to overcoming idolatry is to live by the strength of a different power. And so in walks Daniel. So secondly, the power of holiness. And so the scene continues as the king is freaking out, not knowing at all how to understand what is being written on the wall. He can't get any of his wise men or counselors to come even close to interpreting what has been written before them. But then the queen enters, and she reminds Belshazzar of one in whom the spirit of the holy God is found, a man of intelligence, insight, and wisdom, a man of an excellent spirit. 
She may not have known the source of Daniel's intelligence and wisdom, but she knew there was something different about him. She knew there was the spirit of the gods upon him, that she knew there was a different power at work in his life. And so Daniel, the Jewish exiled man, the outsider, is brought before the king to see if he can offer an an interpretation for what has been written. And what I find fascinating here as we think about the life of Daniel is that we're actually sometime further on now from his earlier life that we read about. And so actually, we don't really know too much about what he's been up to, but Daniel is essentially an old man at this point. But it's clear that he has lived a life of integrity, an undivided life. He was still known for being a man of excellent spirit. And you see, his decisions as a younger man to not defile himself with the king's food meant that he could stand before this royal feast, set free with boldness to speak. His devotion to God throughout his entire life meant that he had a secret history of wisdom and learning with the Lord, that he knew the voice of God. His resilience earlier on to not bow down and worship other idols meant he could withstand the temptation to receive accolade and honor from Belshazzar, that when he was offered robes as a kind of reward for what he had done, he could refuse it because he did not want to accept honor from this king. Daniel's hidden life of holiness gave him incredible power in the face of the earthly powers of his day. His private purity meant that God could use him and give him a public platform. What I wanna say is never underestimate the power of small decisions, particularly earlier on in life, that can have such incredible effect later on as you journey with God. Because even if you might not see the results of those hidden decisions to trust God, to walk in his ways, he sees it all, nothing is hidden from him. You're investing in an eternal future with him. Even if you can't see the results, it's so worth it. As Jesus himself says in Luke chapter 16, if you're faithful in the little things, you will be faithful in the the large ones. And so Daniel was able to withstand darkness that came because he knew deeply who he was and whose he was. He'd had a lifetime of practicing. He knew the power of God and he knew that power of God at work within him. And so Daniel is presented before the king and he is able to deliver the, king's, the king of kings message as he translates the words, mene, mene, tekel parsin. The Lord speaks powerfully into this scene. He says, numbered, weighed, divided. You've been found weighed and wanting. The sacred symbol, the sacred symbolic cups that, that Belshazzar had just completely disregarded God for were also made of gold. But Daniel's God was not a God of gold. He was not a material God. He was a true creator God who had seen it all. God had intervened in this scene and the king's fate was written on the wall. Numbered, weighed, divided. You see, God is holy and sin cannot go unpunished. God is holy and just and it can't just be swept away. And ultimately within a few hours, King Belshazzar would come to his fate and his kingdom would be taken away. He would die the cost of rejecting God was very real. In fact, even as King Belshazzar called for Daniel, he called for, Daniel's name means God is my judge. He called for judgment upon himself. But you see, the power of holiness took down the power of idolatry in King Belshazzar's life. God is holy and there must be judgment for the evil and darkness that we see in this world. Every ruler and regime must come down. And actually, one day, as we read in Scripture, every single one of us will stand before the Lord in judgment. But he's not only a just judge, he's also the God of mercy. And we see all throughout the pages of Scripture 
as God's chosen holy people, turn away from him again and again and again, replace him, replace his love with love for other idols, disobeying his commands, living with divided hearts. We also see God relentlessly pursuing them with his love, that the same God who spoke into this scene to reveal in the, in the darkness the light, even into the most idolatrous places, is the same God thousands of years later who is speaking in the world today. And we see that actually God's holiness doesn't mean that he's far off and distant and away from us. But actually, in Christ Jesus, God himself, the Holy One, came into the world. He entered into people's homes. He sat and ate and drank with them in order that they could see close up the purity and the goldness of his perfection and his beauty. That just as Daniel was rejected, so was Jesus. You know, the purple robe that King Belshazzar placed upon Daniel's shoulders, which actually ultimately led to his judgment and death because he didn't accept the God in whom the message came from. This robe also reminds us of another robe that was robe that was placed upon Jesus' shoulders as they mocked him, as they led him to be crucified, as they took the most beautiful life that was ever lived and nailed it to a cross. Which brings me finally to the question of how do we live today as, bold, as disciples with bold integrity, of a life of undivided devotion, a life marked by holiness, marked by the Spirit of God. How can we be empowered to live like Daniel? Well, the only really answer to this is that we can't unless we turn to the Holy One of Heaven, the one who took judgment for our sin, for our idolatry upon his shoulders, in order that we might be free from sin and death and live a life of freedom. Because although the world may have judged Jesus incorrectly by sentencing him to a criminal's death, God the Father, he raised him up on the third day in order that we might bow to the one who has the name above all other names, that we might receive forgiveness and be set free. And only through God's spirit at work within us can we live a life of holy devotion. And there's another time in scripture where we see the hand of God, again, writing, And it's in John's gospel, an account of Jesus' life, where we hear of the religious leaders trying to trap, religious leaders of the day trying to trap Jesus by bringing before him so callously a woman caught in adultery. The punishment for which, according to the law of Moses, should have been that she should have been stoned to death for her sin. But you see, Jesus responds in the most beautiful way. And in the face of their judgment, he bends down and writes in the sand with his finger. And we don't know what was written, it's not recorded. But what we do read is that Jesus Jesus stood up after he wrote in the sand with this woman standing before him. He says to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. None of us are without sin. And of course, one by one, they left this woman alone until it was only her standing before Jesus. They thought they had nothing to fear as they judged her yet they had unknowingly unknowingly come before the presence of light, the light of the world who comes to expose the sin and darkness, but also comes with love and mercy and grace. And could it have been that he even wrote in the sand those same words, mene, mene, tekel, perez, weighed, measured, divided. They couldn't bear the light and they walked away. But this woman, convicted of sin, was covered by grace as she stood before the Holy One of Heaven, She couldn't remain living in darkness, and she left, set free and forgiven to live a different life. You see, even our deepest pain and our deepest shame and our deepest regret 
is no match for the King of Kings and for the power of his love. I remember walking into this place before I became a Christian, so nervous that someone like me wasn't allowed in a building like this, but as I was met by the King of Kings, by his love, I remember that overwhelming experience of being set free and forgiven as I encountered his light and love and received forgiveness. What I wanna say today is don't underestimate the power, the extraordinary power of God's holy presence at work in a person's life. Because we see all throughout history and throughout scripture that when ordinary men and women live a life according to God's ways, set apart, their hearts just set on loving him first and foremost, that it has a contagious effect, that people are drawn to the light of Jesus in them. And you see, right worship has the power to bring down any idol. And this world so desperately needs to know the true light of the world, Jesus, the King of Kings. And I've been hearing stories even this week of how people have been drawn to their friends because of the way they've been living their life. They've been asking questions about church, about faith. Perhaps you're even here today because you've been drawn by the way someone's been living. And we wanna pray that even this week we might have opportunities in our workplaces, in our families, wherever our context, context is, to display a different spirit, the spirit of God, and there is no power that Jesus is, that is too strong for Jesus to set you free from. Let us pray that the deepest desire of our hearts would be to seek first his kingdom and to love him rightly. Like Daniel, that we might live long lives of obedience and integrity, walking in private purity so that God might use us to display his goodness, to display his beauty and to display his holiness. We're gonna come before another table now. We're gonna come before the Lord's table as we're gonna take communion together. So why don't I invite you to stand as we respond now? And I just wanna say, if there's anything that you perhaps know has been hindering you from living that life of purity and freedom, that before the Lord's table, we receive mercy and grace. So why not open up yourself, your heart to him today and receive from him. Let's take communion together, amen.